This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Christendom College Graduate School, where theology is practiced with uncompromising fidelity to the deposit of faith. Learn more at graduate.christendom.edu. That's graduate.christendom.edu. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, my Pillar co-founder and friend, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. How are you? I'm Dandy JD. How That's are you great. doing? I'm doing well, Ed, and thank you so much for asking. Um, we have tomorrow our sort of pillar Advent tide um, celebration, a little pillar Advent dinner. Most of us from our team will be there, and most of our spouses will be there, and there will be oysters, and it it will be it will be good fun, and uh, and I'm looking forward to it, and uh, and you. Uh, we'll be here in Colorado, where most of our team is uh, for the for, for that. So that'll be nice to to have you around. We've got to you and I have kind of run some errands, like we have to we have to go to a bank to sign some papers because there's some papers that we need to sign in the same place at the same time at the bank. Largely because <laughs> initially the bank was going to let us sign those papers sort of in two different places, but then something happened with you and a banker, and suddenly that option wasn't available to us anymore. I don't know. What had yes. happened there? Uh, I gave them my social security number, and they said that that was not a valid social security number, and that I was clearly trying to perpetrate a fraud of some kind. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I know my own number. I'm holding my card in my hand. I've been living with this number for four decades. Pretty sure it's valid. Well, the computer says no, and, and things... Things degenerated into a into a frank exchange of ideas and then opinions. JD <laughs> um, names were called. Professionalism was questioned. Um, <laughs> is it the possible? only thing that amazes me is that despite the incompetence of the people at, <laughs> you still want us to move our money there? What little money we have, and um, you know, I like to think that's I'm I'm approaching it in the spirit of Christian forgiveness. That's that's what I'm doing. Well, we bank right now with a little. I would say a family bank, a very – we like the people at our bank very much. It's a very, sm very, very small, very regional bank. We like the people at our bank very much, but it befuddles them when we travel to other places, and that's a big part of our job. And it befuddles them when we have, for example, technology vendors who are based in other parts of the world, you know, and that's a regular part of our technology use and infrastructure. And it even befuddles them that we had – befuddled them for a while that we had sort of independent contractors, freelancers in other parts of the world. So we, I mean, what we like about our bank is that when we call the number on the back of our card, the same person picks up a lady who is very nice and she knows us and she sort of asks how we're doing. But what we don't like about our bank is that it's not built. If we, if you and I owned like a body shop in, in a rural part of Colorado, this would be the ideal bank for us, but we don't. Like a tanning salon? No. <laughs> Like a place that did body work on cars, like popped out dents. Or, oh, oh, a mechanic. Yeah, yeah. Well, a body shop is different from a mechanic, but yeah. Um, a mechanic works on the engine. A bo the body the body shop works on the body of the car. Um, but if we worked on, if we owned something like that, this would be the ideal bank for us and we'd love it. Unfortunately, the demands of our work require, I think, for us to have a bank that does, that is more accustomed to people who do a global business, so to speak. My experience of American banking is that we will run into exactly the same frustrations at a larger American bank who seem to approach the idea of international travel and business with exactly the same 
reflexive xenophobia and confusion. So <laughs> I, I no, think we're going to sacrifice I... beautiful customer service for, you know, press five to speak to an operative and when spending I, an hour on hold and getting nowhere. But I, I'm, I'm willing to be, look, I've been outvoted. We had a business meeting and I was <laughs> outvoted. And so we're doing it. I'm flying to Denver to sit there while these people who think that I am not a real person using a fake social security number, you want us to entrust them with our business so that one day I will be standing in the freezing rain outside Fumicino airport and my cards won't work and I will be on hold with a robot. You won't need to be because you'll have star. the app. You'll have, I'm trying to tell you, you'll have the app and you'll just, on the app, you'll just open the app and click and say, I'm going to Europe and then that'll be all that you have to do. No, it won't. It won't work. And then I, you'll have to call. It because I bank with in my personal life and I go to these places and use my own card to buy a little present for Mrs. Flynn or what have you. And my card works vis-a-vis the app. This is this is going to end badly for us. Okay, but it's all right. Speaking of problems, speaking of regionally specific problems, um, I want to talk about um, a dubia responsa that was issued this morning by the um, Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, formerly the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, regarding a problem that I think is probably not perceived as a broad problem here in the United States, but actually is an issue in other parts of the world. And um, and and I thought this responsa was a very sort of interesting and helpful reminder to us that. The church is not a monolith where pastoral challenges and problems of pastoral practice are the same everywhere. Because this morning, we're recording this podcast on Thursday, the Holy See made available a response to which it actually issued yesterday, the 13th of December, uh, regarding the question of access to Eucharistic communion for single mothers. The dicastery, Ed, have you read this? I have read it. It was very interesting. The dicastery said that they had gotten a letter from a bishop. In the Dominican uh, Republic. In, in the Dominican Republic, who had expressed concern about single mothers who, quote, abstain from communion out of fear of the rigorism of the clergy and community leaders. Several letters from lay people received by the Holy Father return to the same theme. It is noted that in some countries, both priests and some lay people prevent mothers who have had a child outside of marriage from accessing the sacraments and even baptizing their children. So the question that this bishop wanted to ask effectively is, what should be um, done or said? How, how should we sort of approach um, this question about, um, it, it wasn't even a question. It's not a dubia. It's, it, I, I frame this probably wrong because it is not the case that the Bishop of, um, San Francisco de Macorís in the Dominican Republic sent a dubia to the CDF saying, what should I do about this? So much as that he wrote a letter saying, this is a concern that I have. And the CDF decided to make public their response to him in order to sort of address this, this thing, which we'll, we'll talk about as a pastoral problem in a minute. But the CDF sort of responded to this to say, being a single mother does not prevent that person, a person from accessing the Eucharist. And I think probably to a lot of our listeners, that seems relatively obvious. The church teaches that a person who is um, uh, living uh, in a manner as if they were married with a person who is not their spouse, in other words, a person who is living in a stable sexual and domestic relationship with a person who is not their spouse should abstain from Holy Communion. But the, the very fact of being a single parent by itself is not the same kind of thing, and therefore those things should be treated as they are instead of uh, as they're not. And so that's what this letter seeks to clarify. And and that is, I think, from our awareness, from our own experience working in tribunals and dioceses, more of an issue in, in many parts of the world than certainly would be here. I think you're right to say it's more of an issue. I don't think it's a non-issue in American dioceses and parishes. Um, I, I mean, for sure, I agree with you that to listeners of this show, 
the content of this letter from the DDF will be self-explanatory and almost, you know, appear to be an exercise in stating the obvious. Uh, but I, I, I'd remind you that our listenership is an incredibly self-selecting group of informed and enlightened individuals. Uh, it is not alien to me to encounter people, usually women, in similar situations who have been either deserted by their husband, um, have been you know, been forced to seek the remedy of civil divorce because they were in an abusive situation, um, which is placing them or their children in physical danger, uh, to walk away from all of that with the impression that they are at fault somehow, that the church considers yeah. them to be guilty of some kind of crime or sin, and that they are in an objectively sinful or morally scandalous situation, and that they should refrain from taking communion. I it is in double figures the number of individuals or cases like that that I have seen in this country in the less than double digits of years that I have been living in the United States as an adult. I That is not uncommon. And if it is not uncommon in my experience, it cannot possibly be uncommon in the sort of national experience that this kind of misconception exists. And and I think it is, it's a pastoral tragedy because for women living in a situation um, like this, where they are single mothers, they have been either abandoned by uh, their spouse or the father of their children is in is in some other way uh, necessarily absent. To to have them default to a presumption that they cannot approach the Eucharist, that and to do so in the wording and reference of this DDF letter, do so basically out of fear of being condemned. That they will they will face social ostracization and censor within their parish community. I mean, that is heartbreaking. These are the people who have an urgent, if not the most urgent, claim on the church, her ministers, and the Christian community's pastoral charity and solidarity. And to know that there are people out there who who think when they are in most pressing need of the the charity, rightly and properly defined and understood, of the church, uh, feel they can't approach the church because they will just be condemned. I, I, I think is heartbreaking. So I mean, I'm I'm glad that this is out there. I it's it is it should scandalize you. It should scandalize me. It should scandalize everyone that such a document needs to be written. Yeah, that's well said. L- let's do some review. Uh, of sort of what the church teaches and then talk a little bit more about that. So, you know, the church teaches that marriage, the matrimonial covenant, um, is a partnership of the whole of, of life, that which exists for the whole of life, right? That marriage is by the whole of human nature. life. The qualification the is important human. because life is eternal right, and marriage right. is not. That's right, right? That marriage perdures until the death of one of the spouses, that marriage is a lifelong partnership. Um, and therefore, that um, divorce, all things being equal, um, divorce is, is a violation of the matrimonial covenant and is therefore moral evil to be avoided. But not absolutely, right? So the church says that divorce, all things being equal, is uh, a violation of the matrimonial covenant, which is a covenant for the whole of life and therefore is a moral evil to be avoided. But also that there are circumstances under which a person might um, justifiably obtain the legal status of divorce from their spouse, even if they continue to affirm that the marriage is valid or if they decide to challenge the validity of the marriage. But in either case, because of um, uh, danger to themselves or their children, 
um, you know, a situation of persistently abusive conduct and and, and these kinds of things. Yeah, so there I, are reasons. There are, and I mean, there is, there is, and you see this on the Twitters and stuff where, you know, sort of pop culture misogyny is as popular in Catholic circles as it is in wider society, unfortunately. Um, there are people who say openly, you know, that the church's teaching is somehow that women are chattel property of their husbands and that the church's teaching on the insolubility of marriage means that, you know, there is no outrage or excess to which a husband could go that would ever justify the wife departing and that, that you know, the church teaches that marriage is indissoluble, so you got to stick it out and love him and, you know. It, uh, Under every circumstance, yeah, and, you know. Right, I mean, this yeah. is, apart from being morally monstrous, this is also just factually incorrect and false. I mean, there's an entire chapter, a chapter of the Code of Canon Law headed the separation of the spouses right like this is not a footnote <laughs> this is a chapter like there's there's right. a yeah it's funny to me that you bring that up because those canons regarding the sort of ecclesial processes for the separation of the spouses have largely and in, in fact entirely fallen out of use here in the united states the church your point your point is that the church recognizes there are legitimate times for the separation of the spouses and yet it's funny that you bring that up because those canons have you know, some effectively them, but no, no the first article one in chapter nine of the blessed book the four of the holy ones. code of canon law is the dissolution of the bond yeah or as we like to call it in canon law school dissolving the indissoluble <laughs> okay so the church recognizes that there are times when a person you know when though divorce is a violation of the uh, though divorce is under all things being equal a violation of the perpetuity of marriage the church recognizes that there are all kinds of reasons well, why should, i mean the code puts it very succinctly this is to the law jd for that is where we belong. Um, okay. Canon 1151. Spouses have the duty and the right to preserve conjugal living unless a legitimate yes. cause excuses them. Spouses have the duty and the right to preserve conjugal living unless a legitimate cause excuses them. Yeah. So there, in the, in the context of that legitimacy, there are reasons why divorce is justified. It does not mean that the church says that marriage is therefore invalid or can be dissolved right. or the bond remains that marriage right, remains exactly. indissoluble unless but the, church the bond is challenged in an ecclesiastical setting right. and that a, is a separate process, process examining right. separate questions but the bond can be the validity of the bond can be challenged in an ecclesiastical process and if a person is found never to have created a bond in the first place through a declaration of nullity they could pursue uh, a, a, the attempt of marriage again yes. um, if they don't do that then the church also says that it's a moral evil to again cohabit in a marital way um, to maintain a stable sexual relationship with a person who is not their spouse in accord with the church's uh, judgment, and which is reflective of natural law and, and reality. Um, but in the middle is a person who may well be, even through no fault of their own, divorced, raising children, or, or perhaps they're even divorced through a fault of their own. Perhaps they oughtn't have divorced, and perhaps they've confessed that, they've worked that out in their own moral status, but nevertheless, the, the marriage has not been reconciled either, and there they are. And, um, you know, and they've worked that out sacramentally in confession. Um, but nevertheless, the marriage is where it is, and there they are. And there are, there is a perception um, in some places that such a person, by virtue simply of being divorced, should not receive Holy Communion. It is not my experience in the United States that that comes in the way that this letter suggests that it does. So this letter says there are clerics who are telling, and even lay people who are telling divorced people not to go to Holy Communion. Oh, I, I, I know and, that that has happened. I, I don't 100% encounter clerics, know that this happened. 
see, I, I don't encounter clerics who tell people not to go to Holy Communion under any circumstance. It is very rare that I encounter a cleric who is telling someone not to go to Holy Communion. And maybe I'm, you know, uh, the esteemed listeners of this show aside, who I think probably give clear teaching on this, I, I it's not the kind of thing that I hear very often, although maybe it's given in a more pastoral context. Or we something. are a Catholic church, J.D., with a capital and lowercase c. And there's mm-hmm. room for all yeah. I have had, I, I'm, I want to I want to actually think carefully about this because I don't want to give a an exaggerated hypothesis. I've had at least three phone calls in 2023 of people saying, "My again, pastor is, said not to go to vo- to go to communion because a pastor of the or other priest, uh, mm. you know, either a pastor or someone giving spiritual direction or something that has said, well, you are a single mother, so you you know, you shouldn't take communion, obviously.' And I mean well, that's I, again, this is not a knock on that. this is not a knock on the on the average ability or understanding of church teaching of the average priest and diocese ministry in the United States. Not at all. This is these are outlying things and don't, mm-hmm. you and I are relatively non representative in our exposure to these things because we tend to be lightning rods and mm-hmm. people who have questions about this sort of thing tend to call people like you and yeah, me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the, these are not unknown situations. It is it is not a not the, the existence of this is is non zero. And and I've seen it, and I have had personal experience of it. My own experience does not comport to that, but my own experience does say that there are many people who have this perception, who think this is true. And I was mentioning to you this morning um, an experience that I had working in a tribunal a long time ago. Um, I don't know, probably dec- more than a decade ago. I don't know, a long time ago. I was working in a tribunal, and I was doing a deposition of a lady who was petitioning for a declaration of nullity. A deposition means you're interviewing them. So I was interviewing them, and uh, at the end of the deposition, and this lady was a very devout but unfamiliar with the ways of a tribunal and so she just kept thinking that i was a priest even though i kept insisting that i wasn't and i was even wearing a tie but she at the end she said and you know don't worry she was petitioning for a declaration of nullity not even because she anticipated a remarriage but because she just wanted to rectify her situation or have clarity for her situation she had been divorced for like 25 years her husband had left her to marry somebody else you know to sort of run off with someone else he, you know, she had raised the kids. The husband had been absent from all of that, and so this lady just raised her kids as a single mom, you know, like uh, in in the way that she could. And uh, and she said to me, she said, you know, Father, don't worry though, because I um I haven't gotten, you know, I, I'm divorced, so I haven't gone to communion. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I'm divorced, so I haven't haven't gone to communion. And my heart just broke for her that mm-hmm. she had spent, you know, twenty five years living without the gr- grace of a sacrament, which would probably strengthen her faith. Um, because she had this wrong perception. So even when my my observation is, there's often a perception that has a person sort of self, um, uh, uh, a sort of self imposed uh, Eucharistic exile more often than a clerically imposed one. Although I, I certainly believe you that, that that exists as well. Yeah, and, and, and to be clear, I, I'm not suggesting that um, one is universally common, or or, or even um, anything other than vanishing the rare, perhaps. But I'm just saying it does exist. And the other thing that you say is. It, it, you know, to your point about this person who was sort of in self-exile, um, bear in mind that what the DDF's letter from yesterday says is expressing concerns about single mothers who abstain from communion out of fear. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you don't point. need to have Father Pastor standing at the front door of the church, you know, saying, "And so where you is know, your no, husband?" No. Uh, right, you know, yeah. to inspire that fear, it can be, it can be a misplaced fear, it can be a misjudged yeah. fear, it can be an internalized fear. It. The point is that fear is real. I mean, it, I think it it would be incredibly naive to think that a single mother 
taking her kids to mass in your average well-attended suburban parish won't feel some sense of exposure, yeah, social right. exposure. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And the duty, the pastoral onus is on the pastor of that parish and on the wider community to make sure they don't feel that. Yeah. You know, to set, to to have the the awareness of you know, your sister in Christ sitting next to you in the pew and to make sure that they, you know, they could never get the misapprehension that they are right. unwelcome or unloved or judged. Right. Okay, you had some other observations though about this letter from the DDF. I mean, it 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 was um it was fun to read in a in a letter signed by the ghostwriter Morris Letizia. Um to read the sentence, of course, as for all other Christians, sacramental confession of sins allows the person to approach communion, which I thought was rather just a refreshing yeah. refreshing statement yeah. of fact. A refreshing <laughs> reminder, a refreshing affirmation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that we all need to make recourse to the sacrament and receive valid sacramental absolution to have yeah. access mm-hmm. to the Eucharist. That was just a nice little throwaway in there. I enjoyed. Of course, it then led into, and this I found this helpful um, because I mean we can speak as mature adults here and say that there has been a, a, a pervasive sense of confusion. Some might say controversy over the extent to which this teaching on the necessity of being in a state of grace suitable to receive the sacrament mm-hmm. is is held uh, in the church today and whether this discipline is is wholly disciplinary or in fact reflects a, a theological and sacramental reality with consequences for people's mortal souls and the extent to which any and all of this is held by let's just say senior clerics in the church in high office um but there has also been, since the publication of Amoris Laetitia all those years ago, and it does feel like a lifetime ago now, um, a, a lot of questions about the sort of, you know, pastoral, complicated pastoral situations where, um, yeah. you know. A, a, like a lady, you know, the, the Pope has made this example of a lady who has, has kids and she's trying to raise the kids and then she takes up with a man and the man has the expectation that they'll have sex. And so the lady feels obliged to have sex with the man effectively so that her kids aren't thrown out on the street. Which, in other words, a lady who is trapped in a coercive sexual situation from which it is my hope that the first response of the church is always to help the lady get out of the coercive sexual situation. Before we're sort of having a conversation about can the lady receive the Eucharist under the coercive sexual situation, which I think most people would understand there's not agency there. Though We're talking about a person who is tolerating sort of um, something which is to be intolerable. Um, I don't know that I'd use the language of toleration. I would say who's enduring Who's in? Thank you. Who is enduring something which is doubtlessly intolerable? You know, it is my strong view that the first thing the church should be talking about in that situation is how can we help you get out of this situation in which your dignity is being violated so coercively and so abysmally. But the the conversation often comes often in recent years has been rather this question of can the person receive holy communion, which would seem to me that any any reading of sort of traditional categories of moral theology had already answered. Of course, a person who is being sort of compelled or, or or abused into being effectively used in someone else's sin is not culpable for that. Like that seems so manifestly obvious to me. But anyway, go ahead. I, again, though, I, it is manifestly That's obvious. That's not to the you. same as people who are living in more exorio of their own sort of equal volition and just don't want to give up, you know, um, their sexual relationship in order to live in accord with the discipleship of the gospel. Sure. But again, what, what you consider to be blindingly obvious is not so everywhere. 
I mean, this is the thing is people often complain and I often complain about sort of straw man arguments in the church about, you know, arguing, you know, ridiculous things about ridiculous examples and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But those straw men are not erected solely by YouTube grifters that they, they, or, you know, C-list academics. Um, Those, those arguments have currency and attract an audience and attract visceral participation from people because they are reflective of a wider cultural misunderstanding of church teaching. Like people buy the nonsense because they think the nonsense is true or the nonsense somehow jives with what they they feel like is probably right, or at least there's an argument to be had there. And correcting that is an important thing. And I'm, I mean, that's why I was really pleased about this DDF letter. I mean, it is these things do need to be said. The fact that they're obvious to someone who is in, you know, engaged with their ongoing formation with the faith, who reads the church fathers, who attends mass, you know, more than a canonical obligation and, you know, does spiritual reading and goes on retreats and you know, people who have a very active prayer life, have a very active engagement with the development of their faith as an adult. Sure, all of this stuff might seem obvious to them, but that's not necessarily the universal experience. And yeah. there, there is an obligation created by the ignorance of other people, the innocent, unculpable mm-hmm. ignorance of other people on the church to address that. That that mm-hmm. is a that is a pastoral need that has to be met. Um, I I think that's really good that they're doing it. I mean, the other thing that this yeah. um. This DDF letter said, and I think it's entirely true, is that social stigma of single mothers, which does exist, and it does exist in the church, and it does exist in the church in the United States, it just does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that creates abortions. That's what this DDF letter says, and they are entirely right. It does. I think I I don't think I read that part. It doesn't say it quite that starkly, but Pope Francis recognized the courage of these women in going ahead with their pregnancy. I know. This is quoting Pope Francis, oh, that it is not easy to be a single mother. I know that people can sometimes look down on you, but I want, you, I want to tell you something. You are a brave woman because you were able to bring these two daughters into the world. You could have killed them in your womb, yet you respected life. You respected the life you had inside you, and God will reward you for that, and he does reward you. Do not be ashamed. Walk with your head held high. I did not kill my daughters. I brought them into the world. I congratulate you. I congratulate you, and may God bless you. Boom. Papal mic drop. Paper mic drop. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by the Christendom College Graduate School. We, we would like to encourage all of you to consider studying theology at the Christendom College Graduate School, where theology is practiced with uncompromising fidelity to the deposit of faith. Christendom College Graduate School of Theology is the first graduate program to obtain recognition by the Newman Guide, which helps students and parents identify faithful Catholic colleges and schools. Christendom College Graduate School has a really, really interesting history because it was founded, Ed, in 1969 as a catechetical institute, the Notre Dame Apostolic Catechetical Institute, which was part of this sort of movement in the, at the time to form these um, really sort of serious uh, institutes for the formation of catechists across the country. And at the same time, it was the first um, Catholic higher education institution founded to address like a genuine crisis in the church in the United States at that time of theological um, dissent. 
So uh, the founder was Monsignor Eugene Cavain, who was a great leader in the field of education uh, and a champion of, of, of orthodoxy. And then the Institute, which was sort of going along on its own, merged with Christendom College in 1997, more than you know, 25 years ago, to become Christendom's graduate school. So it's got a very interesting history that is focused entirely on orthodoxy and the training and formation of catechists. And I think that leads to a, a really um, unique and, and, and important approach to, to graduate theological studies, faith-seeking understanding in the context of lived faith and for the context of conveying um, the lived and living faith uh, to, to, um, to Catholics. That's right. And I mean, their course list should tickle the fancy of everyone particularly the kind of discerning, intellectually curious Catholics who listen to the Pillar podcast. For example, you can take courses on the the Joannine Corpus uh, in the Scriptures, Holy Spirit in Ecclesiology. You can never know too much Ecclesiology. That is a fact. Liturgy and the Sacraments, Catholic social teaching, and I mean, all these courses deeply engage with the magisterial documents. You know, this is, this is something grounded in the teachings of the Church with a special focus on, wait for it, Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And if there is yeah, one right. thing I think the church needs more of today, it is people formed with a solid grounding in the actual documents actual of text. the Second Vatican Council. I think you can't get enough of that. Um, all the courses engage with these magisterial documents. They are taught live in hybrid fashion, which means you can show up in person on their campus in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Which is gorgeous. Which I don't know is if you've been to Christendom. Gorgeous. Ed, have you been to Christendom? I've not been to Christendom, but I've spent some time in the Shenandoah gorgeous. Valley. And there is no okay. ugly part of the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah, you should visit Christendom because it's gorgeous. Anyway. Anyway, so you can study synchronous live and interactive or asynchronous, you know, watch the pre-recorded lectures, you know, to make it sort of more scheduled convenient for you. Participation available for students who are only taking courses online. You can apply for a master's degree today or take one course just because you want to know more. And again, when you're talking about courses like the Holy Spirit and Ecclesiology, which is insanely relevant in the Church of the Synod on Synodality, or things like Catholic Social Teaching, I mean, those are courses a reasonable person would want to take as a standalone, just as, you know, to, to answer one's own desire for greater intellectual enrichment in the teaching of the church. Yeah. Here, here's the deal, Pillar listeners. It, you might think like, okay, graduate studies in theology are not, um, for me, I'm not the kind of person who has the time or has the inclination or has the aptitude or something like that. I think that if you're listening to this podcast, you certainly have, the discerning listeners of this podcast certainly have the aptitude for graduate studies. I think it, you, you, your life would be enriched if you made the time. And here's the deal. The cool thing about the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology is you don't have to like apply for a master's, jump in, and be sort of all the way in with both feet up to your waist on day one. Take a class. You know, take a class. See, see if you like it. See if it's for you. See what you learn. See how it enriches your faith life. And then keep going. Apply for your master's if you want to or keep taking more classes for your personal enrichment. You can participate at the level that is uh, appropriate for your um, your state in life and your availability. Um, and I really think, I mean, it is true that if you want to teach the faith, having more formation in the faith is key. And Ed is absolutely right. It is my conviction that Lumen Gentium is the roadmap for the church in the world today, and with it, the uh, the other constitutions and documents of the Second Vatican Council. And if you think that's true as well, or you want to understand why I think that's true, take these classes, Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, that is graduate.christendom.edu, graduate.christendom.edu. What's up, everybody? We're back. Um, how you doing, Ed? Fine. Um, can we talk about another story? 
that, that yeah we could talk about another story what do you want to talk about man in that in that sort of mediatic twilight between when we recorded the show last week and when the the week restarted on monday something that happened sort of in between we can talk about anything that you want to talk about i would as like to as, talk what about what kind of game are we playing today i have no idea i have not um you're the game guy. I I understand that, but I I'm trying to cram a whole Friday's worth of work into a Thursday so that I can get on a plane tomorrow morning and then spend the afternoon in a bank, <laughs> a bank that thinks that I'm not a real person. <laughs> but you're the game guy. I understand. Okay, we're gonna probably play a game that I like to call banking. Yes or no? Oh, good lord. Um, <laughs> I I would like to talk about uh. Cardinal Wilton Gregory, if we could. Please. Okay. Cardinal Wilton Gregory, Archbishop of Washington, D.C., recently turned 76 years old. Turned 76 years old, I want to say, last week. Might well have done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about your analysis of said Cardinal. Okay. Set us up. Well, so last week, Cardinal Wilton Gregory was doing a Q&A at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., of which he is the... Chancellor? He is the Chancellor. He's the Chancellor. By virtue of being the Archbishop of Washington, he is the Chancellor of the Catholic University of America. And he was asked a question about basically the availability of the what we used to call the extraordinary form of the liturgy on campus and sort of in general um, within the context of a diverse church. And he was asked about liturgical diversity. And he gave an answer that I thought was quite striking in his choice of language and in his tone. Um, I mean, he he set out to explain and subscribe to the Pope's general uh, thesis and rationale for the promulgation of Traditionis Custodes. Fine, you would expect nothing different um, from a serving diocesan bishop that he would subscribe to a clear normative instruction from the Pope. Um but he went he went further in 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 his sort of gloss and said things like sometimes tradition dies a slow bloody death um yeah. mm-hmm. which is a striking image in a church in which tradition is not a bad word in fact tradition is how we get the faith and of course he did not mean sacred tradition the element of rev- of divine revelation which the church understands to be part of the deposit of faith it, it seems manifestly clear to me from having watched the context that he did not mean sacred tradition. I think we should clarify that as a matter of fairness and objectivity. Sure. But I'm just saying when the, when the stock phrase old habits die hard is right there to, to opt instead for tradition dies a slow bloody death sometimes. Right. Is, is a little punchy, especially when it was Mm -hmm. followed up by his diagnosis of what he sees as the quote unquote problem of um, sort of traditional Latin mass practice, presumably informed by his experience as Archbishop of Washington, um, in which he basically said, this is all the priest's fault. It's all young tratty priests coming into parishes and forcing old form, old style liturgy on you know an unsuspecting parish community. And I mean, he made it sound like they were meth pushers. Like, you know, they go in there and then they, they, they force this on them. And the next thing you know, they're hooked. And uh-huh. that's why you have all these people who are asking for um, traditional liturgies because, you know, the, the, the pusher man priest 
got him hooked. And now we got to, now we got to make him go cold Turkey. And then he turns around and says, so the problem we really have to do is we have to deal with these priests. Like his entire thesis, I found remarkable. Um, and, and the way in which he spoke about it, I found frankly shocking because for a start, it is, I feel comfortable saying this. It is not a universal truth that appetite for, um, the old style of the mass is purely a result of priests imposing it on, foisting it upon unsuspecting parishioners and getting them hooked. That is not true. I know a lot of priests, including in the Archdiocese of Washington, who had no particular knowledge of or affinity for older styles of liturgy, but who went out of their way uh, in their spare time to learn it and to become more au fait with it over the years in which it was absolutely recognized as a valid and in- something to be encouraged in the times of Benedict the Sixteenth. You know, they were told this is this is a this is a pastoral option. People have the right to demand it of their priest, and if the and if the community does demand it of the priest, it is on the priest to meet that need. The the exact opposite of what Cardinal Gregory said was the reality in many many parishes for many many years, backed by the law of the church, backed by an apostolic constitution that said if you father pastor have a stable community in your parish who are asking for this, you have an obligation to meet that that request. And so to turn around and say, no, it's all the priest's fault. It's just like, what? It just doesn't tally with reality. But also this idea of we've got to deal with the priests. Like with the priests, what? The priests who are meeting the the requests and the pastoral needs of their flock. That's what priests are supposed to do. That is what it is to smell of the sheep. Is if your flock come to you and say, Father, this is what we what we want and need for the nurturing of our spiritual life. Can you help us to give them what they have? That that is that kind of, you know smell of the sheep pastoral solicitude that priests are supposed to have and to turn around and sort of say, you know, we're going to get those guys for what they've been up to. It's just like, I, I was gobsmacked. I really was. Okay. I, I was too. And that's why I wrote the analysis that I wrote, uh, which, which you're uh, jumping off from. Um, I think uh, especially, you know, this, uh, this sort of assessment of Cardinal Gregory, is rooted in this idea, which is, it's not actually, it's not, I'm certain of this, a sort of liberal conservative split. It's a generational split because mm-hmm. you'll, because um, it's a gener, <laughs> I like how you say it. I go, it's a generational split. And he goes, mm-hmm, like, yeah, them old guys, like, but it's just, I mean, that is a generational split actually just I, means I was it. just agreeing with you. I wasn't over here yelling. Yep. Okay, boomer. No, you did. You literally go, you go, mm-hmm, and then you snapped your fingers. Which was not something that I expected from you. Um, no, that's not. It, that's no. Did not. I. I actually am physically incapable of snapping my fingers. Okay. Time out. We're kind of come back to the Gregory thing. Put a pin in it. What? Yeah. No. I physically can't. I can't snap my fingers. It's impossible. Do you have some sort of deformity? I don't know. But it's like you know how some people can't roll their tongue. I. Yeah, but there's a there's an allele something. <laughs> I don't know what an allele is. There's a genetic. You're making up words you know, again. The, no, no, this is a real thing. You know, that tongue rolling thing, it's like recessive genes and all that. Like there's that little chart with the dominant, recessive, dominant, recessive. And if you fall into one of the categories of the boxes, then you can't roll your tongue. But finger snapping is it's not like, rolling like that. snake eyes in the genetic lottery. Uh, yeah, that's you right. Blue I think eyes you, and can't roll your tongue. Is it possible you don't know how, just don't know how to snap your fingers? I mean, you just press your lips together and blow. I mean, it's not, um, is it possible you just don't know how to do it? No, I'm, I'm pretty clear how you snap your fingers. Okay, hold your hand up. Yeah. Okay. Put your thumb and uh, put your thumb and your forefinger together. 
This these two? N- no. This is no, my forefinger. Oh, sorry. Your thumb and your uh, middle your index finger. finger. Uh, middle finger. Yeah. This finger that I'm holding up yeah, to you right one. now. Yeah. Yeah. Put your thumb and your middle finger together. Okay. Now press. You snapped. Yeah. All right. <laughs> is that the first time you've snapped? No, I've been yanking your chain for the last four minutes. Are you, are you kidding me? I, I honestly thought you had no idea how to snap your fingers. And I was just, I couldn't even begin. Why did you do that? <laughs> just, you, you have a long history on this show of taking me down a silent and just absolutely winding me up. For long tangents, and I thought, here's a here's a window I can climb through. You just snapped your finger. You, doesn't that make you happy? Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's so you already knew how to snap. Give, yes. Okay. I, I, yes, yeah. JD. I can snap my fingers. I've been able to do it since I was you know two years old. I, you okay? You 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 got me good. Okay, cool. Um, can you crack your knuckles? Yeah. Okay, good. I just wanted to know if I was going to. Okay, but will you give me this? I did a pretty good job teaching you how to do it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you don't know the difference between a forefinger and an index finger, but otherwise you were right on the money. <laughs> I don't know the difference between a forefinger and a middle finger. Um, forefinger and index finger, I think, are the same finger. Are they? Well, what's four, what's a forefinger? The one you point with, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I just Googled it. Forefinger, the finger next to the thumb, the first or index finger. Ah. So, yeah, so this finger can be called... Forefinger? Forefinger, index Which finger, one? or pointer. Okay, so what's this one? Middle finger, which you're pointing at me. No, that has a name. Middle finger. No, it, it gets a fancy name. That That is its... Why would it get a fancy name? Because that doesn't make any sense that you'd have three words okay. for the forefinger and no here, words... Here to- I am. Here I am on, in some sort of anatomy textbook. Index finger, pointer finger, or forefinger is this one, which I'm holding up. Yeah. Now. You can't see. But then the next one, middle finger, or they say long finger, but I've never heard anyone refer to that as your long finger. No, no. All of these I. anatomy charts that I'm looking at are just saying. Uh, now, okay, we can find the names for the finger bones in the finger if you really want them. On long kind of- finger, second finger, third finger, or toll finger. Toll. I never heard that. Oh, yeah, because if you encounter if you need to cross a bridge and you encounter some trolls and you don't have a sufficient amount of gold that's the one they take oh really yeah they just chop oh, i thought up. it was like oh, when right you're up. driving through the easy pass gates on the pennsylvania turnpike you roll the window down and to the camera flip, flip them the old toll finger yeah flip them the yeah. toll finger okay we got to get back to Cardo hey for Gregory. my road i'm sorry i thought this was america <laughs> we got to get back to this okay so uh the hey there uh, delaware here's your eight bucks the bottom, the the uh, the uh, I'm having trouble reading this, but I think your finger bones are called phalanxes or phalanxes. Phalanges, I think they, JD. Phalanges. No. Oh, phalange is the plural of phalanx. Your phalanges are your fingers. This is this is this is yeah. The I'm just looking at the terms. names of the bones. Okay, yeah, the bones are called phalanges. Each one is called a phalanx, and then the big okay. hand, the big bones in your hand are called metacarpals. Okay. Okay. Anyway. And the big bones in your feet are called metatarsals. That's that's right. Okay. Um, Cardinal Gregory 
Ed, uh, Cardinal Gregory. Oh, yeah. This is, I think this is, it's not a liberal conservative split. It's a generational split where I, 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 among people, uh, uh, bishops of a certain age, sort of they're, I, let's say, maybe mid-60s and above, um, for the most part, and it's my observation that clerics of that disposition, of that of that sort of generation, even if they are otherwise theologically conservative, like we might sort of say JP2 conservative, have a different approach to liturgy than do clerics, let's say, who are maybe 35 and younger. And I'm not sure exactly where to put the middle guys. Maybe there's sort of more variety there. I'm not sure. But those older clerics, liberal or conservative, tend to sort of have um, less understanding of why Catholics would be interested in the, certainly the extraordinary form, but also often things like ad orientum or Latin in the liturgy or chant or things like that. Now, there are exceptions. There are some prominent exceptions. Raymond Cardinal Burke is an exception. People like my friend Bishop Jim Conley are an exception. But for the most part, I think the seminary formation of people in that era sort of predisposed them to think of the Novus Ordo itself, even in a very particular way, you know, um, which was uh, in, entirely in the vernacular, always versus populum, lacking um, the thing, some of the things with Sacrosanctum Concilium says to preserve like antiphons and chant and things like that. Priests who are, let's say, 35 and younger, maybe 40 and younger, their seminary formation, you know, sort of emphasized, even in the Novus Ordo, this notion of sort of reform of the reform where the, I think probably the, new tr- the, new, the retranslation of the Missal, probably the existence of the germ, and then just a sort of disposition to sort of do more liturgical scholarship led to even leave out the extraordinary form, led to many priests of that sort of, let's say, 40 and under, 45 and under, being far more inclined to sort of reform of the reform approach, even to the Novus Ordo, where things like the use of Latin and antiphons and chant and, and, and maybe ad orientum are, are more common, more attention to, to, to liturgical vestments, and most importantly, an orientation to the notion of the mass as an act of worship and an act of sacrifice, there can be there can be an overemphasis, I think, among older generations, again liberal or conservative, on the notion of the mass as community meal. Now, the mass is a communal sacrifice, so there are problems in both directions. The problem with going sort of too far in one direction is to begin to think of the mass as the work of the priest, singularly the priest, and everyone else sort of regards the mass as a time for private prayer or regards the Mass as sort of some thing, some period of anticipation before receiving the Eucharist, that the real thing is receiving the Eucharist. So that's the problem in one direction. And to some extent, I think we saw that during the pandemic. Like, it was a problem, I think, when, you know, like, um, I, I think the pandemic revealed some pro- some problems in liturgical formation in the United States where most people saw the real sort of paucity of the thing as we're not able to receive the Eucharist. And there's a truth to that, but also... We're not able to participate in the Mass in a full act of conscious way in our role, which is um, to be part of the communal sacrifice, which is offered at, at the altar through the hands of the priest. So there's a danger of excess in that way. And then there's a danger in excess in the sort of other direction of regarding the Mass as sort of only um, horizontally focused within, with a sort of complete lack or, a, or, or, or um, at least a diminishment of the sort of vertical and sacrificial nature of the Mass. So there's this generational difference. And then... I think Traditionis Custodes exacerbated that dramatically because it made younger reform of the reformed priests sympathetic to those to those among them who had learned, those among their brethren who had learned the extraordinary form, and to Catholics who really liked the extraordinary form. It made them sort of, the extraordinary form became much more of a rallying point, I think, for many more Catholics who were otherwise, you know, perhaps less inclined towards it. And on the other hand, you I, you see all these bishops who feel like 
the politically important thing for them to do is to talk uh, crap about the extraordinary form. And so they just pile it on, right? And then they think, well, if Pope Francis wants me to do that, he also wants me to ban or ad orientum and all these other things as well. What gets lost in all of that is there can be a pastoral problem if Father Pastor comes in and without doing appropriate catechesis sort of comes in and just changes everything, you know, with the snap of a finger like that. That can also be a problem, but that tends to get lost in this sort of divide in which both sides take an exaggerated position. The one sort of thinking the politically important thing to do is to sort of besmirch any element of tradition in, in the liturgy, and the other sometimes failing, I think, to recognize the cultural problems that can come along with some communities connected to the extraordinary form and, and things like that. And so then you just get these entrenched positions of generational divide and a lack of trust there, and that's, I think, what's happening in Washington. All right. So I, I have a question for you. Yeah. Accepting and endorsing everything you just said about a generational divide. With lots of exceptions. Yeah, but as a general yeah. assessment of the situation. Whose is the tradition that's dying a slow, bloody death? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, clearly the sort of... Rarely is it the tradition of the young people. Let's say Novus Ordo 1.0. slow and let's, bloody death. Yeah, let's say Novus Ordo 1.0, right? American Novus Ordo 1.0. Um, felt banners, folk guitars, felt and Felt banners, folk guitars, th only hymns from Gather. And I like sort of... There are St. Louis Jesuit hymns that I think, you know, everyone in America kind of likes, even if they won't admit it. That's not true. Um, <laughs> all of those things. That's false. That's not the direction of, that liturgy is taking in the church in the United States, even in the Novus Ordo. That is manifestly and clearly just not the direction that liturgy is taking in the church in the United States. And 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 I, from my point of view, for the better, but I also understand where I fit in that sort of um, generational diagnostic that I just offered. So you think, you think um, to, to quote Jim Morrison... If a new church has been sung into being, it is also <laughs> being sung right. It is being chanted out of being. Chant, <laughs> chant the new church right out of being, Ed, is my mantra for that. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> chant the new church out of being it's you could oh, gosh. we could okay first of all trademark that slogan for the pillar second of all we're not selling, trademarked i declare yeah i declare <laughs> second of all we're not selling that one on t public where we don't actually make a markup because that one could make money <laughs> like we need to find a way of actually making money off of that that's a great slogan yeah but you know like then i'll say something positive about the Novus Ordo, and the all the people we'll who have two t-shirts won't like me anymore <laughs> It'll be like those. It'll be like bars on election day, where it's like you know, put a red a red sticker on one there can tap be. and a blue sticker, blue sticker and a blue cap. It's like you know, whoever sells, you know, whoever drinks sells the most beers for their color wins. Yeah. I don't know moral authority, or whatever. And the bar just Let's gets just to say make beer. There can also be. I mean, it is true. I think many people go to the extraordinary form because they're looking for something more permanent, something more rooted in tradition. They want to have an identity that's rooted in the traditions of the liturgy. They want the richness of the liturgy. I think people go to the start going to the extraordinary form because preaching at their parish may be anemic, uh, and 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 for reasons which we maybe would discuss on another show. You know, preaching can sometimes be downright bad, and I think people end up at the extraordinary form because they're looking for. They don't want to be anonymous, and I don't think we can overstate how much the small communities of extraordinary form parishes are often really, really, really important to people. And ironically, those if there is one thing that the documents of the Second Vatican Council and following the Second Vatican Council um, are clear on, that small Christian communities are yeah, the right. future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but when you call them, they, they get all these kind of goofy communist names sometimes that nobody wants. To, Let's be a part of a, a cell or whatever. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to be a part of a cell. Yeah, you should never be a part like of a cell. 
Yeah. Um, People who are parts of cells end up on watch lists. <laughs> right, exactly. But I do think that in the context of those communities can be encouraged. Now, I'm not saying always or universally or whatever, but can be encouraged a certain diminishment of the sort of importance of the Second Vatican Council and can be encouraged, not always, a certain kind of parallelism which separates those who participate in the extraordinary form from the broader communion of the faithful, which is a particular church. And those things ought to be avoided as well. So I do think that's well, sure. There's said, the, but, and this is true of anything in the church that that can have a particular charism or flavor or whatever. Is there's a temptation to sectarianism, which is you know we're the yeah, true right, believers exactly. and everybody else is right. half, yeah. it. and that that's is right. bad. Yeah. Hey, I want to tell you about something really cool that I went to. I'm probably going to write in my newsletter on Tuesday. But did I tell you about SpaceX? You you mentioned that you were going to do something SpaceXy, and I I find SpaceX very SpaceXy indeed. So I'm. I'm all ears. So actually, I'll take you there tomorrow, maybe, um, uh, if you want. Down the street um, from me is uh, is the headquarters of the DISH network, you know, like satellite TV or whatever, DISH, yeah. DISH network. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So is the, the headquarters of DISH network. And uh, DISH network um, makes satellite TV, so they launch a lot of satellites into space. And these days, they launch a lot of their satellites into space by contracts with SpaceX. They pay SpaceX to shoot their... To, to take their satellites into space and set them off. And uh, lots of other companies do this as well. And that's how SpaceX makes money is they take these cargo things up and they release the satellites. They're basically well, the UPS at Astra. Yeah. Well, SpaceX had a Falcon 9 rocket, their, their, um, their unmanned cargo rocket, that had gone into space and landed twice, like gone up, successfully landed, gone up again, successfully la- landed. And they... Uh, they... They... Um, after they goes up and down twice, they don't use it anymore, and uh, and so um, is that true? Yeah, twi- after twice they say it's not stable enough. Interesting, at, at least as I'm told. So after after twice they say that it, a particular one is not stable enough. So they gave because Dish Network is a big client. They gave Dish Network um, this rocket, which has now been put on display about like five minutes from my house, and uh, it's really cool. It's got these huge titanium nozzles at the back from which the fire comes and everything and it's like mounted over a trail the the south Platte trail or whatever so you can like while you're out for a run or bike ride or walk or whatever you can just like walk right under the rocket and and throw rocks at it and stuff like that and and i think my guess is ed that in about five years there's going to be like there's going to be some sort of way in which a bunch of people are you know like uh, building little fires inside the rocket and drinking wine in there but for now it's and it's going to become a public nuisance but for now it's really quite cool so i went to it the other day and it was awesome that's really cool I, is it like yeah so it's basically a kickback like for a valued customer yeah for our valued customer here's our empty rocket or whatever here's here's a falcon nine here's a falcon nine <laughs> that's cool now the dish network was telling me it cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars even to build a suitable sort of cradle mm-hmm in which to have it, you know what I mean? Right. But um, still, that's But really I mean, cool. you would. Yeah. Yeah, if they sent me a Falcon 9. No, you would not spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on that because you don't have that. No, but I mean, I'd go to I'd go to our wonderful new bank. <laughs> have them do it on the pillar's credit. <laughs> and the only question they'd yeah. ask me is, what's my social security number? And they wouldn't even be able to understand the answer to that. <laughs> 
Oh man, I don't. I was gonna make a game called Banking Yes or No, but I I didn't because we got to talking about stuff. That's so, fine. We're um, having fun. We've we've uh, just let's well. just talk about Christmas. So we did talk about Christmas carols last or Christmas pops. We talked about Christmas pop songs last time, and that was fine. But what I'd like to know is, Ed, what are your like Advent or Christmas? What are your what are the church Christmas songs like the Christmas carols, Christian Christmas songs that you most like and the ones you most don't like? Um, Maybe you can be top two and bottom two. Uh, all right. Um, so my top two, you want me to give please. you my top two? Uh, I, I really like God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. That's that, and, that's uh, a quality carol. Let nothing. And then, do you know Good Christian Men Rejoice? Good Christian yes. Men Rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Yes. Give you, yeah. That's a good one. That so you like is, a good lusty Victorian. Like, good, like a good lusty Victorian song. Basically a Salvation, the, the salvation the Army Band. men. Yeah, the Salvation yeah, Army Band's right. greatest Give hits. Give heed to what we say, news, news, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Those are those are good. Um, I, Gaudete, probably my favorite. What's that? I don't even know that. It's the, it's, um, well, I'll play you a clip. Um, infant holy, infant lowly. Big fan of that. Here we have a clip. What are some of the ones that you don't prefer? I don't know. I don't. I don't have any reflexive. I don't like this Christmas carol. I like Christmas carols. I. It is. It is a beautiful genre of music. I. We have many albums because we're the sort of people who still enjoy physical media in our in our house. We have many albums of the King's College Choir doing Christmas carols. We used to go when we lived in London. They would. They would often bring either King's College or another Cambridge college with a rich choral tradition would come up and perform at um, St. John's Church, Smith Square, which was conveniently located near my office at the time. Um, my wife and I would go to a, a carol concert there every year that we really, really enjoyed. The the choral tradition is something I like very much. I'm, I'm struggling. I and would you know me, I hate agree. everything. I like hymn sings. I love going to a good hymn sing. And you know, that's something I even miss just in, like you miss it in America and I miss it in American, like I miss it from my evangelical roots where we would go and have these lovely hymn sings with handbells no handbells in american catholicism mm. that i come across mm. yeah no carol of the bells is is actually quite powerful if played well and other handbell music too i mean i think we can probably agree that it's just so much of a cliche but mary did you know is a kind of a mm. not one of my favorites yeah once in royal david yeah. city that's a good one uh that's a good one that's a good one yeah, it is a good one. I concur. Yeah, okay. Cool. I, I mean, I you know me. I don't like anything. And I'm trying very, very hard to come up with a Christmas carol that I instantly go, no, I don't like that. I know. I thought you would have a long list. I did too. But here it is. You put me on the spot. This is not a Christmas carol, but I don't like the sentimentality of have yourself a merry little Christmas. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. I, I hate that. And it's, I mean, you know, right from what is it? Um, Meet Me in St. Louis where Judy Garland's doing it, and it's, you know, I'm crying while I sing this song. It's just so much pathos. It's, oh, spare me, please. Yeah, I know. It's like, okay. Absolutely spare me. No one really isn't unhappy about leaving St. Louis. In the evangelical church in which I grew up, our Presbyterian church, which has sort of gone through some rebrandings, 
um, we had a really wonderful dinner. Oh, it was on Christmas Eve. It was ahead of our Christmas Eve service. It was wonderful. And so there would be, it was in the church basement and there were tables, you know, and I think it was a sort of served dinner. We had these really wonderful dinners there and it, it was a great little, very small church and very, very close knit. And uh, the Christmas custom was that each table would have a, a a role in the 12 days of Christmas. So one table would be, you know, um, 12. Oh, I have a Christmas carol. I hate it. Okay. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Oh yeah. I hate that song. Sorry, I just before I forgot it again, I wanted to say, carry on. No, that's okay. So, you know, each table would have a thing and be responsible for singing that part of it or whatever. And it developed over the years, largely because of the influence of my dad, but it developed over the years so that at first you would just sort of stand up and sing it. But then my dad started bringing in props and costumes for each table and um, and then sort of trying to get them to stage sort of elaborate reproductions of their thing. But it was really – a lot of people don't like the 12 Days of Christmas, but I have like these really wonderful memories of this ridiculous It's funny that singing, in your evangelical church that you thing. grew up in, you have fond memories of singing the 12 Days of Christmas because the 12 Days of Christmas has its roots in Catholic recusancy in England. I know. I know they didn't know that though. One thing about American you were evangelicalism – You are sneakily <laughs> being all Catholic. Well, they're just blissfully – they're not self-aware. You know, there's just – I have noticed that about evangelicals. Self-awareness is not their strong suit. <laughs> that's, that's at least my experience. I'm going to get some letters about that, but that is my experience. No, they, they won't know we're talking about them. Well, Ed, we will have a lot to talk about. So we're going to have a show next week. I, I, we'll have a, we're going to have a show next week, and then we're going to be off uh, between Christmas and New Year's as we customarily are. But I will look forward to talking to you then, and I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow and to all of our listeners if you don't listen next week for whatever reason, even though it's not Christmas or anything, we'll, we we love you. And, Ed, of course, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to us by the Christendom College Graduate School, where theology is practiced with uncompromising fidelity to the deposit of faith. Learn more at graduate.christendom.edu. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira. We'll be back next week. How, how, how. How.